This is Circulating Ideas, episode 200. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guest today is Tracy D. Hall. She is the executive director of the American Library Association. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Syndetics Unbound and listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Today's show is brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and much, much more. Syndetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage, and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Syndetics Unbound, visit syndetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Syndetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's syndetics.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S.com, to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Hey listeners, it's Steve. I wanted to drop in with a quick message before we start the interview that this episode marks 10 years of doing the podcast. Yes, back in June of 2011, I... Did the first episode with uh, Buffy Hamilton. So thank you to her. Thank you to you for listening over all this time. And I hope you guys have learned as much as I have because it's been a great journey for me. And I hope you keep circulating your ideas. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Steve. I wanted to start out with asking how you got involved with libraries in the first place. What drew you to the field in the first place? Well, I been a lifelong library user, and I have even heard some tales from my brother who used to walk me to the library that a Saturday and a library for me was an all-day affair when I was really young, and I wanted to stay for all the story times. The story times were sort of like the point for me, and I even stayed for story times that weren't in my age group and even heard that I probably scooted towards the front in those and uh, maybe may have acted out some of the stories <laughs> turning towards the rest of the children, <laughs> maybe who were younger <laughs> than me. Uh, so I think I've been a lifelong library user and my family certainly encouraged that. My grandmother in particular encouraged that. But I think in terms of the possibility of working in libraries, it wasn't until I was directing a homeless shelter for youth, for young people, that I started to see the connection between low levels of literacy and chronic homelessness or people being unhoused chronically, long-term situations there, and also to poverty. So seeing those connections between low levels of literacy and limited information access and and what they meant long-term, I think as an antidote to some of that, reaching out to our local public library, which was Santa Monica Public Library, when I was working in the shelter and trying to connect our residents for the short terms that they might be in the shelter to the public library, I really um, started to see public libraries as having this tremendous capacity to support some of those needs. And I think that lit the fire in, in me. And then shortly thereafter, I would go on to start work at 
Seattle Public Library as um, a young adult services coordinator, but at, at that particular time, I wasn't a librarian. So that was the beginning of my journey. And you went to Washington, is that right, for your library school? Yeah, I went to the iSchool at the University of Washington while I was at Seattle, actually. I hadn't intended, even though I, I really had this tremendous respect broadening all the time, that respect, you know, the more I worked at Seattle Public Library, I hadn't necessarily thought of myself as a librarian. Certainly, there wasn't a lot of talk about, at that particular time, librarians being poets or painters or the type of activists that I think that I was, at least I wasn't as exposed to that. And so I thought, oh, I'll be doing other things. Maybe I'll become a social worker. I'm going to get my MSW. Maybe I'll go on and get a PhD. But it was during the time I was at Seattle Public Library that um, ALA launched the Spectrum Scholarship Program. And I heard about it because Sasha Orange, who was then director of the Office of Literacy and Outreach Services, came to Seattle, I think, to give a talk and ended up turning it into a recruitment trip. And we were connected. She told me about Spectrum. And I think that night I applied for Spectrum and library school or some sometime in the next few days. And that really changed the course of my professional career for sure. I think we're going to talk about some ALA's diversity work a little bit later, but that's obviously some proof there that that kind of program can work <laughs> to get people into the field because um, she went out yes. and recruited. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I think that type of investment, whether it's, you know, obviously Spectrum is critical because the American Library Association continues to be the largest driver of diversity in terms of having a workforce diversity program in the sector, and then emerging leaders in general. I mean, I think there are a lot of sort of early career programs that ALA has invested in where you see the return on impact. And I also have to give a shout out to our new PLA president, Maria, who is also a product of Spectrum. So I think that, you know, we are seeing and we'll see over time, we'll continue to see the return on, on investment. And even Lessa Playa Lozada, who is our new ALA president overall, is a product of the Emerging uh, Leaders Program. So I, I think in our professional lifetimes, we're seeing that those programs do matter. Before you were the exec executive director, you had previously worked for ALA in the Office for Diversity. Can you talk about yes. the work that you did there? Yes, actually. My first introduction to being an ALA staff member was directing the Office for Diversity, which is now merged with the Office of Literacy and Outreach Services and now called the Office for Diversity, Literacy and Outreach Services. When I came to the Office for Diversity, one thing I have to say is that Spectrum was still an initiative. It wasn't necessarily as woven into the fabric of the association. And at the time I came, in the um, early 2000s, we were entering in the University of Michigan decision about diversity and about whether or not diversity recruitment was legal or not. And so there was like really, I think, like a, a moment of really needing to re-up that commitment to say that we think that this is important for the field. And we were able to concretize that by not only people like Betty Turok and others, Carla Hayden and others, so many who were really dedicated, Camila Alire, um, so many who were dedicated to Spectrum and to what it represented, supporting Spectrum with funding from advocating that we receive further funding from our endowment. But also we were able to write two 
major IMLS grants to broaden uh, Spectrum's reach to increase the number of scholars, but then also Dr. Josie, E.J. Josie, the former founder of uh, the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, was alive then, and he was ailing, you know, as he was older than an octogenarian, but he was so vibrantly alive in terms of his thinking. And I remember reading a lot of his work while I was at the Office for Diversity, and in some of his writings, he was just really advocating for the diversity of the professorate, of the LIS professorate, and how important that would be to long-term diversity in the field. And I actually found his number, asked someone for his number, and I think he might have been in an assisted living facility. I can't remember exactly where he was, but I started calling him at night and we would talk through his writings and I was able to use um, some of what he had written, but also where he was in his life and to write a grant for to IMLS for PhDs students. And, and I called, I actually went on vacation and I used that time to actually call 10 library schools, the ones that I thought might have some of the most competitive PhD programs, and asked them if they would provide half of the support for a PhD student, and we could write the IMLS grant for the other half. And every single, every single school, starting with Pitt, where Dr. Josie had, had taught, said yes every single one of them. And I was really excited. So, you know, we did a lot of things. We started a diversity newsletter at that time because we really wanted, it was very important to get the practitioners, especially BIPOC practitioners, to get their words in writing, to get their experiences in writing. We really saw the need to diversify the literature. During that time, also, we were able to also do a lot of consulting to the field, which I'm so happy that Odlos continues. And just do a lot of first. There were so many. We also focused on rural and geographically isolated communities and diversifying the librarian workforce in those communities. So I'm really, you know, pleased because I feel like that sort of ferocity, that sort of relentless commitment uh, to diversity and to racial equity and to all of the manifestations of diversity, you know, in terms of the human experience really let me know that when I came back uh, to ALA or when I was asked to throw my hat in the ring, that I wouldn't have to compromise these in those areas. Because right now, the thing that is most important to me in my life right now is justice and social justice. And so I knew that the track record that I'd established at ALA meant that they, I was a known quantity when it comes to that commitment. Can you Tell listeners a little bit about what you do as the executive director for people who maybe don't know what that job kind of entails. <laughs> yeah, well, it is ultimately to set the operational strategy as well as the financial strategy for the entire association. That's inclusive of all 35 plus units that we have, eight divisions, offices, and a lot of service units, you know, that power the work that we do. And to do that, obviously, in concert with the board our members, stakeholders, et cetera. You obviously joined ALA at a pretty challenging time, not only just from the financial issues that kind of came out, but then also the pandemic. <laughs> it was obviously another big curveball that nobody really was thinking about. So at this moment, kind of what do you see as the biggest challenges that ALA is facing right now? I think the biggest challenge is really to not only embrace, but to pace the tremendous opportunities that we face. I think the thing for the association is that we are at a time when the notion of information 
as essential infrastructure is being articulated, right? The theory of that, right? Because I think that we're seeing in our lifetime this redefinition of infrastructure, inclusive, of course, of transportation and all these other things, but understanding that access to information, digital and otherwise, is absolutely necessary to to keep our communities vibrant and, and viable. And we're also at a time, ALA, as it gets ready to turn 150 years old, you know, is existing at a time when three of our primary quality of life indicators access to education, access to employment, and access to public health are all predicated on information access, digital and otherwise. And we have to be, as Emerson would say, as real as the things we see. Today, no matter what people think about, if they're in um, the field or even proximate to it, if they want to have a definitive answer or a um, definitive sort of direction to move in, they come back to ALA. Other associations, library associations in the field that are smaller or more specialized, if they want to chart a particular course, they always come back and say, you know, we're thinking this, what is ALA thinking? ALA is um, really the coral reef for the field. And I don't take that lightly because I have seen the coral reef. I've been blessed to actually see it and see all of the larger, more complete ecosystem that it's a part of and to see the organization that rely on it. And I've come to see ALA in the same way. As the association goes, so goes the field. When we are strong and able to advocate really effectively, we see things like the ubiquitous internet. We see things like low internet rates, rates that have been low enough to allow us to do what we're doing today and to make um, that accessible to most, but not all people. But we also see ALA at a point now where our council, ALA's council most recently declared access to internet a human right, which means that we have to lobby and push for a free fee internet. And if digital access is going to be a part of our social infrastructure, we're going to have to see that and we're going to have to see it in our lifetime seat. So I think when I think about ALA, I think about we have to diversify our revenue. And I I do want to say this, as especially as our field, right? talks about finances, and especially because a lot of our colleagues in the field have budgets that are presented to them or given to them, or uh, it's very different. ALA, 93 to 96% of our revenue at any particular time is generated revenue. It's earned revenue. So what I applaud ALA for is being able to reach almost 150 years old as a 501c3 and to do the amazing thing of generating over 90% of its revenue in its entire lifespan. That's unprecedented anywhere. But what I think ALA has done is to allow some of those revenue streams to get a little bit long in the tooth without diversifying them. So now under my leadership, we have an opportunity um, and with the amazing staff we have and the board, who is my obviously necessary and needed and vital thought partner, we have an opportunity to pursue three other impact streams that generate both revenue as well as membership. And those are areas where we are already either the leader, current or expected leader, but we haven't necessarily articulated that. And that's continuing education, data design and research, and also contributed revenue, which is allowing us to continue to provide grants to the field. 
whether it's the dissemination of hotspots, setting up small business centers, workforce development programs, and most recently, some of the largest grants that we will ever have given between thirty dollars to $50,000 that are supporting libraries in trying to shore up their COVID-related as well as post-pandemic library services to help communities recover. Obviously, members and dues is a big part of that. How how can you make ALA more attractive to library workers in the field to make them want to join? And what is it that you can tell them about ALA that you should be a part of this, (laughs) make Uh, them want to join? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things is that, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to build that network with the field or with your peers, you came to to conference, you joined ALA. So that was membership and you came to conference. Right. You know, and then you read about their thinking. Right. So those were our three primary revenue streams, membership conferences, as well as publishing. Today, with the internet, you know, folks can say, I'm a librarian who's really interested in in food access, and you can create a a space on the internet for yourself and create a group on Facebook or Twitter. You can communicate all the time, and you can find like minds, right? So I think that part, you are able to to some degree to kind of get a, a sense of immediate satisfaction. But I think that what ALA has always done, though, is to actually move the field forward. So ALA, as I do a lot of research and think about my own experiences with ALA over the last um, nearly 30 years, what I think about is the fact that ALA is a place that also sets some of these ideas into policy, into practice, and really determines the future of not just the association, but of the field. And the association can do that in a way that honestly, the internet can't do, because we can actually codify practices. We can actually create policy. We can actually set protocols. And I think that is what people are interested in, in moving the field forward. That's what ALA does. And to be honest, there is no uh, replacement for that because we codify those ideas and those become standards for intellectual freedom. We codify those ideas and those become standards for library services to people who are incarcerated or detained. We codify those ideas and that becomes the spectrum scholarship. We codify those ideas and that becomes emerging leaders. And there is no substitute for that. I feel like a lot of times people who disagree with something the ALA does with, I mean, obviously nobody agrees with anything 100%, but if you just disagree with it and you're from the outside, then your voice isn't being really heard. So if you're a member and you're there and you're going to the conferences and you're going to council sessions, you, you have to be part of the conversation to change things the way you want to change them, I think. No, you're right. I mean, you know, it's the same kind of idea about voting right? And democratic engagement. The way that you actually and actively engage is through your vote and through the electoral discourse around that and mobilization and those kinds of things. I I, I know that one of our staff members, one of my colleagues who heads um, membership, when we spoke early in my tenure, she said something that stayed with me and was really music to my ears. She said that when she looked at membership in ALA, what she thought was really different about ALA and other associations that she had worked for is she said that ALA is an association, but ALA is also a movement. And I thought about that too, because I think that librarianship in some ways was a kind of mobilization in its early inception in this country, because at one point we had normalized libraries, even when we had normalized adult literacy. 
And I think that at the same time, Carnegie and others were building public libraries in particular so prolifically, two out of five adults wasn't fully literate, right? And we still have some literacy struggles, although we've normalized the institution of libraries. And I think those of us who believe in a democratic society don't believe we can have a democratic society without libraries, academic, public, school, or otherwise. But I think that you're exactly right. When I think about ALA and when people say, well, ALA, you're talking about 56,000 members. And the way that we shift and bend ALA to move with the times, to move with the will of the people is by joining ALA. I want to believe that conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, conversations about diversifying our professorship in the LIS world, even conversations about the power differential um, between how libraries were deployed with these huge reference desks that seem almost sort of like you were kind of like the royal eye and folks would stand before you and kind of plead their you know information case. I tried to disrupt that. I, I would write about actually blowing up the reference desk. So I like to think about, I, I was writing 15 years ago about the Black body at the reference desk and connecting Black librarian users and their usage patterns to the history of compulsory illiteracy that was attended to African enslavement in this country. So I like to think that when we think about critical race theory and power in libraries, I like to think that I've contributed to that discourse. And when we think about the social responsibility roundtable, when we think about the Rainbow Roundtable, when we think about Emert, Coretta Scott King Awards, when we think about Pura uh, Bell Prey, when we think about Dia, all of those things are people pushing and pulling the association forward. And, and you can't do that if you're just on the sidelines, right? You cannot do that. And also too, as James Baldwin says, you know, to be committed is to be vulnerable, right? And I think that people who talk about what they, the royal they, are doing, but aren't active and aren't mobilizing, that talk for me is just talk. I, I want people who are going to put their energy on the line to pull this and other fields uh, forward. There's obviously a, a lot of work being done in ALA to forward together is the name of the initiative of changing the structure of some of how ALA is done, of talking about doing something different with council, something different with the executive board. Can you talk about the current state of that, like where we are, you know, the talk of like a constitutional convention kind of thing of like, where are we right now with that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, isn't that interesting? Because we have like all of these sort of tides of change going on within ALA. And, and that feels about right. Anytime you're going to be a, a, a century and a half old, you should be doing that type of introspection, right? And I think the last deep sort of governance introspection was done probably about 30 or 40 years ago. So it feels ripe and it feels right to be happening right now. But I think that in addition to forward together, we're looking at our operating agreement, you know, and we just completed our pivot strategy, which is our pandemic change management plan for the next uh, five years of the association. So I think all of those things like feel right and they feel, it feels that they should be happening in concert with each other. But in terms of governance, I mean, I think that the members of the association want what we all want what we want for our country, that we can govern effectively and that we have a governance structure that is representative, that is resonant, that has reach and can actually speak for the constituency that entrusted to speak for them. And so right now that's in the hands of the council. So it's in the hands of the council to determine what that's going to look like and that feels right too. As I was doing some research for this interview, I came across one interview you did, I think it was with Sari Feldman, where she mentioned big ALA and you had a 
poor reaction <laughs> kind of to the, the term big ALA. And I think that shows kind of even internally, sometimes it, it, the association needs to be a little more unified. Can you talk about kind of what you don't like about <laughs> that term? Well, I, you know what, I, I'm always interested to see, first of all, I want to thank you for all of the questions. You're making this interview really fun and exciting for me because these are the kinds of questions that I appreciate being asked. But first of all, it's a false dichotomy. This notion of big ALA, ALA is, is, is a canopy for all of these units that we, who are members of the association, think are important to do timely work and to do the full work that the field requires, right? And that's an ever-evolving sort of roster and proposition. So when we talk about big ALA, I just don't know what that is and where that would be. So are we talking about general funds? Then all of the divisions operate using the general funds. That's why they're general funds, right? So that would be like us talking about, I just don't understand it because ALA is a house and all parts are necessary. The kitchen is critically important and the bedrooms are too. And so I just don't understand that. And I think that, you know, because language means things, I'm a writer, so language means things. I can't let that pass unless somebody can articulate it. And if someone says, well, when I say big ALA, I mean everything that is not my division. Then what about the other divisions, right? And also to letting that stand creates an unnecessary and unnatural division. And no one who joins ALA can say, oh, I would just love to just be a member of this division and not um, ALA, well, then you really would be cut off, right? You would be completely cut off. What ALA means is that you actually have at any given time, your membership, even in a division, pulls on the work of 30 plus other units in order to make that complete. And that's why I, I say that. And I take exception to big ALA because it's false and I don't understand it. And I haven't heard any definition that works for me or that talks about how important it is that we have a professional association that serves libraries of all types and information practitioners of all types. That is our strength and we must preserve that. That's great. One of the things that the field um, as a whole needs is diversification, because every time we keep doing surveys, it's still, you know, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly female. It's, it's the stereotype that we're, we, we want to try to get away from as much as we can. And a, a lot of that work needs to get done, you know, local hiring, local work at local libraries and everything. But what is it the ALA can do as a national organization to help take the profession as a whole and help make it more equitable, diverse and inclusive? When I talk about ALA, we have less than 250 staff at ALA, right? But we have 56,000 members. So let's be clear. When I talk about ALA, I'm talking about the membership. The members have to recruit diverse members. And we, obviously, we have to support that. And we already know that the commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion in the field is so profound at ALA that it exists in every single unit, every single unit. It's in the fabric. So I think that what we we have to do is that we have to get off of the talk part and get onto the walk part. So I'm going to just say this. I always say to folks, too, whenever we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I always say, um, look at your own friends, look at the community that you live in, <clears throat> look at your coworkers, and if you're in a hiring capacity, look at your hiring. And if it doesn't reflect the diversity, equity, and inclusion that you know the field needs, you got to start with yourself. 
right? Because we need all kinds. You know, we need we need to have a strong BIPOC workforce within, you know, LIS because that's the thing that's going to make our libraries resonant and representative of the needs, but we also need to be thinking about how it impacts collection development and and service disposition and decision making in general, right? And we also know too, Steve, and there's a lot of studies that have come out on this, the reason why we are in this stuck pattern when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the LIS field and otherwise is because all we do is talk about it. We're not hiring. Hiring makes the difference, right? It absolutely makes the difference. And so if you are having your 15th EDISJ committee meeting at your library, but in the last three to four years, you haven't hired people of color or just one person, and you don't have any managers, you know, who are of color, then it's a problem. And and, and definitely when we talk about fit and all that stuff, nobody can tell me, because we're in the world of literature and ideas, that um, genius is not an equal um, opportunity employer. Because one of the things that we can say in terms of the evolution of human genius is that that is a place that is, we, we can't apply a racist lens. Because even when we try to create a canon to keep out ideas and expressions, you always have the geniuses who jump that line. And so we have to make sure that we're recruiting the full talent pool in library services. But I want to see us start with diversifying our membership. And that means that the way that we're going to need to do that is to hire differently in libraries. And we're going to have to uh, prioritize walking over talking because the talking stuff is a problematic and it's been happening too long. Yeah, because it's nice when all these statements come out about George Floyd or Asian American violence or something like that. But when it's just a statement and it's not followed up with anything, then what does that even mean? You know, there's absolutely action is important. Right. And we know that racialized capitalism has a tendency to co-opt um, these ideas and movements. So, you know, after George Floyd was murdered, and I mean, I'm not even talking about murdered in a way that I can even just use murder. What happened there was so egregious just to our evolution as a, a, a species that, not, that it was, it be, it was uh, a spectacle, you know, that someone would lose their life in that way and Wow. But what I want to say there is that after that, folks that you already know didn't believe that Black Lives Matter because you could see it in their hiring practices. You can see it who speaks for the organization, see where they invest and all those other kinds of things. Everywhere you had Black Lives Matter. And to me, if there's anything more repulsive than the thing that begat all of this is the fact that you knew that people were doing it because it became something that they felt they had to do to kind of save themselves or absolve themselves. And we don't want to do that. In the library world, not ALA, when we say Black Lives Matter, we have to mean it. In the library world, when we say that Juneteenth is an important holiday, we have to understand what we mean about Juneteenth and understand that the reason why we have a Juneteenth is because people, Black people, were denied the right to read. And that being found reading or even being a white person teaching a Black person to read was punishable, not just by fines, but also by physical punishment. It is one of the, in terms of the Black Code laws, it was considered to be one of the most severe offenses so that it was actually taxed 
and came with corporal punishment. That's how problematic it was. Now, where do we see those same kinds of things happening? Where do we see compulsory literacy manifesting itself all over again? We see it happening ritualistically almost in our prisons and in incarceration, right? And so I think that when we start saying those things in the field, we have to mean it. But it is hollow unless we're changing our membership ranks and we're changing the ranks of LIS leadership and, and how we hire. Yeah. And I think even beyond that, you, you hire, but then you need to have an environment where somebody wants to stay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you get into place and you're like, oh, well, I'm not supported here. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we found when I first came to ALA, going back to my office for diversity work. The first thing I wanted to do was to create a census for the field to understand like what was happening in librarianship, and then to be able to understand, see to your point, not just recruitment, but also retention. And so we were hiring for a new head of the Office of Research and Statistics. I camped outside her office and said, I, I really want to do this. I think I was, I think she started one day and the next day I was literally sitting in a chair outside the office trying to catch her to say, I think we need to do this work. And that work was released in 2006. It was the first official ALA longitudinal reflection on uh, diversity in the ranks of the profession called Diversity Counts. And so what we're hoping to do now, to your point, is to not only remount Diversity Counts, but also to bookend it with a first national major retention study. Because what we found there is that before BIPOC librarians could reach their 10th year, their between eight and 10 years of employment, they were leaving the LAS field for a lot of reasons. One, obviously, is because we talk about diversity, but we don't always create conditions that will allow diversity to flourish and become normalized in, in libraries and other places. So you're exactly right. I think that we want to get closer to understanding why. We also know that we need to have more people of color who are at the mid and executive management level. That won't solve alone, but what we know and what we have seen is that managers who are people of color tend to be the largest hirers of people of color. And we also wanna make sure that we're creating spaces where people don't feel like they're the only one and that their deeds are sort of amplified on a scale that their white peers never experienced because they have a larger peer group. So. There's a lot of things that we need to do, but I agree. Recruitment is critical because I'm also thinking about economic justice. And I also have done a lot of research to understand not just in librarianship, but in other fields too, that people of color, especially black folks too, tend to have the same degrees, but not to be hired or hired at the same rates or at the same compensation as their white peers. So I would be remiss if I didn't say that I thought hiring was important, but attending to that is retention. And in fact, I think the retention piece is, is the harder part because it exposes the institution and its weaknesses if an institution is not able to retain talent. That, that speaks to what's happening at that institution and, and flaws therein. And I think especially with school librarians and uh, public librarians of working with people, younger people in their lives and, and doing programs and getting materials that show this social justice lens to librarianship and uh, having kids grow up with this kind of thing. Because I know I'm 40 mumble mumble years old <laughs> um, and, I know, and, and I grew up in Tennessee and I had never heard of Juneteenth until after I was out of college. 
Yeah, because so Juneteenth is Texas, right? Juneteenth is like Louisiana, Texas. So again, when we talk about Juneteenth, that isn't a universal, even for Black folks, that's not a universal holiday. But what it represents now has come to be so important because it, it still exists. That kind of economic isolation, those kinds of reinforce educational gaps, right? You know, this idea, because Juneteenth is also too about hand-me-downs and clothing and not having the agency, you know, people who are asked to make new clothes for folks to sew and and make other people look great, but then have to wear the handy-downs that were original, you know, all of that. That's why I think it's become national as opposed to regional. But so you were in Tennessee, you didn't hear about Juneteenth, and then what? Well, I was going to say, the nice thing is my kids now, I mean, I'm in Georgia now, they are learning that in school. So, I mean, my, yeah. my son's in fourth grade and they're, they're coming and doing reports on <laughs> Juneteenth and all this kind of stuff. So I think stuff's gotten so much better and that's just in the school system. But then I think libraries as a whole can also contribute to that and just have that. I, I think seeing library work through a social justice lens is a really important way for us to serve our communities. Yeah, for sure. Especially since access is um, one of the main tenets of the work that we do as, you know, as is equity. There is no other way around. It's not necessarily sort of like anything you can sit out to, because if you're really a librarian, you're trying to serve everyone who walks in, you have to understand some of the information barriers that they may be facing and also who's been institutionally underserved so that you're not imagining that just because your doors are open, everybody who needs your services are going to come to you. So you're exactly right. And I'm happy too. I'm happy that we are passing down our commitments to social justice because we're certainly passing down our racism. So if we're going to be passing down our racism, we need to be passing down our commitment to social justice, because let's be real too, this idea that we're all going to become one kind of like multicultural happy family and that, you know, racism was somehow going to die certainly hasn't been true. And I don't think fooling yourself into thinking, oh, we're living in a utopia now. Oh, we have a black president now. Racism is over. It's like, what? Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that's a great big step, but that's, that's as we saw over the last few years. That's obviously not the case. And that, yes. that, that's things like that have just ramped up. And things like the George Floyd killing, like you said, is not something new. It's something that's being recorded yes. now and shown to everybody. So it's more, I mean, that's a good thing, I guess, about the, our modern times is that we have this social network now and we can get this stuff out and so people can actually see what's happening. Because people, unfortunately, a lot of people won't believe things until they actually have it shoved in their face and say, look, this is happening. Because people have been saying this for years that this is happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but oh yeah, you know, you're right. Sunlight is the strongest disinfectant, right? So being able to bear witness more widely and to understand what this says about us is so important. And ALA wants to be, you know, we want to be on the right side of history, right? We want to be part of that art towards justice. We want our legacy, and I've said this before, but I mean it um, very seriously. We want our legacy as an association and as a membership and as a movement to be justice. And I don't say that because that's what we should aspire to, but at our best, that's what we have aspired to, whether it is making decisions in the 30s to not hold conferences in states that abided by or cities that abided by Jim Crow laws and having our membership, having Black members of the association hold us to that 
to stand and to write letters to think about, you know, also to our recognition, of course, you know, today of AAPI violence and violent language as well, you know, that is critical because that, that's all of us. We want to be on the right side of history. We want to be on the right side of history when we look at the fact that increasingly information access and even the right to read is deteriorating in incarceration and detention for for millions and millions of people in a country, you know, where mass incarceration has become normalized. We want to be fighting for school librarianship when we go to Philadelphia, where we were founded in 2020 last year, just before the pandemic, and understand that only nine, eight or nine schools in all of Philadelphia have uh, staff school libraries. And then we want to talk about the achievement gap. And we, we think about how racialized and class that is, or to look at the proliferation of COVID-19 in rural communities, in prisons, uh, and in jails, and in urban, dense urban communities where we still have weak information infrastructures, you know, on some parts of Chicago, such as a community I live in, less than 50% of people have access to the internet in their homes or even computers in their homes, right? So when we think about that, that's our work, right? We want to be on the right side of history. And if we ignore that, if our library schools are ignoring that, then our students are going to be prepared to serve. If in libraries we're making decisions that ignore that, then I think we risk our relevance and ultimately our funding too. And if as an association, we are not recognizing that and not centering all of that level of access as our work, then we really aren't um, serving the field or the public. So our work now is really about centering information access, digital equity. Those are some of the civil rights um, issues of our time. And also having frank discussions like this one, where we talk about operationally in terms of how it is budgeted and how it manages its budget and how we recruit, retain, and support members and their own activism. All of those are prescient conversations for ALA to be having and for ALA to not only be having, but frankly, Steve, to be leading. You've mentioned incarceration a couple of times, and I know you've written about that recently in a couple of columns yeah. for American Libraries Magazine. Can you talk about how you feel that libraries can help mitigate inequities with people coming out of or in, incarcerated in the first place and then coming out of um, incarceration? Yeah, first of all, and thank you for that. I think if we look at, and we don't even have all the time needed to talk about it, but when we think about what are the leading indicators in terms of what are the various prison pipelines, school and otherwise, we see that all of those are issues that libraries are traditionally in line to disrupt. And I feel that libraries then become places that have to be part of, I don't even want to say the rehabilitation, but supporting of uh, the re-entering of people who have been uh, detained. And then, of course, access to information, reskilling in terms of employment, you know, supporting people and being able to understand the network and community infrastructure where they can go to for support, including, including things like housing as well. And then once they've re-entered, being there and being that connector. I think that libraries play an essential role to hopefully disrupting these various prison pipelines to supporting people who are incarcerated and supporting them post-incarceration. So I feel that libraries play this really important part. But certainly, I think my interest in incarceration is so acute because I come from a community where so many people have been incarcerated. 
and where members of my family have been incarcerated and where my own existence as a Black person and as a Black woman means that I've just been lucky to not be incarcerated. Or maybe I have just like through education or whatever been able to, or employment status, been able to kind of sometimes elude that. But it feels so present for me, Steve. I was um, actually in a car accident not very long ago in a ride in a ride service. Uh, I don't have a car, but in a ride service, and we were rear-ended and pushed into a car in front of us, and it was alarming. But when I heard those sirens, I, I became really afraid. Of course, police are going to come. But I remember when I was asked for my ID, and I remember being looked over by the police officer who was, you know, white. And the person who was driving was a person of color too, and a man. And I remember thinking, rather than saying, hey, are you okay? The first thing is give me your ID, I need to run it. So that's why I think about incarceration because it is so present for my community, right? In those moments, being the executive director of uh, the American Library Association could mean nothing. It don't mean anything. It means like, let me run this and see if you really should be in prison as opposed to in this car or in jail. So that's why I write about it because it is necessary. And so many of our communities live with that trauma and that stress. Yeah, I mean, because like you're the executive director of this big major association. You have multiple advanced degrees, but then he just sees you, they they just see you as just what you look like and you're you're in in a little silo. In a silo, and if you walk in the store, people don't care about that. They're still going to follow you all around the store, you know, and they're still going to look at you if you try to get money out of the bank because maybe you are having some home repairs done during this time of pandemic and that kind of thing, money that you put in the bank. You know, and I remember one time when I directed the Office for Diversity, I'll never forget one of our recipients of the Spectrum uh, Scholarship, you know, $5,000 it is. He was a young Latino uh, student and he called me from the bank. And luckily I was in my office at ALA. This was so many years ago. This might've been like 2005 or something. And he said, "Miss Hall, I have the letter that you wrote you know, which was a, you know, form like, you know, congratulations and all of that. I brought it to the bank, but they still don't believe that I would have this check from the American Library Association. I have them here. Can you tell them that this is legitimate? See, that's real, right? He's gone on to become a great librarian, but that call, hey, that, and that's why I write about the things that I write about, because That is the experience that I have had using and being a librarian and working in an association. Nothing makes you immune from that treatment, nothing. And so what I'm trying to do, I hope in my tenure is, I love librarianship as a practice. I'm a geek for libraries, but I also want to speak about the underside of our societies and how libraries can disrupt some of that. And we cannot, act as if that world it does not exist because it does. Yeah, and I feel like we could probably talk about this for <laughs> a lot longer because all these subjects have much you know deeper things here. But as we're kind of coming toward the end of our time, I wanted to wrap up with something a little positive and uplifting. And yeah. I wanted to hear who are some people in the library field who have been inspirational to you or influential to you in your career? 
Wow. And that's supposed to wrap us up. It's so many. <laughs> oh, wow. It's so many. They say to list is to limit, you know, and I feel I, it's so hard to say that because there's been so many, you know, Sasha Orange, she recruited me into librarianship. Ray Therabrin, who's now retired, he was at Seattle Public Library and then went on in the area to lead one of the smaller libraries in Washington State. He hired me. I came in from as a director of a homeless shelter and he saw something in me and he hired me. Howard McGinn hired me first as a librarian because I then had my library degree for New Haven Free Public Library. And he told me something that was really critical. He said, you know, you love libraries. He said, so if you love libraries, I think you have the capacity to lead libraries. I didn't see that, Steve, but he said, leave libraries for a while. Try other things. Learn to lead in other fields so that when you're thinking about libraries, you're thinking about them in the context of how you lead um, any organization well. And that really changed my trajectory in life because as you know, I've spent as much time working outside of libraries as I have in them. Moore Ahmad was a great mentor to me. He hired me for Hartford Public Library. He introduced this notion um, of com community librarianship as opposed to branch librarianship. He was all about outreach, all about service to the community. He said that to run a branch was like to run a small business and that we had to think of our customers in the same way. He helped me to really think about customer service. I would say people like Carla Hayden who has remained an influence and a supporter and a, a model of what executive leadership looks like, even from her Enoch Pratt days. I would say Elizabeth Martinez, who was, you know, the first BIPOC woman to head the association. I think she was a maverick um, in her ideas. Betty Turok, in terms of her fighting for the internet and then also her support of Spectrum. Kathleen De La Pena, John Agata, researchers who had a profound effect on my work, Elfrida Chapman, who I consider to be one of the Octavia Butler of the field in terms of having this really vision for what information access and what information constellations look like. Vartan Gregorian, who just passed away, who was a president of Carnegie, I think of someone who has shown that to be a librarian and to be a library leader is to have tremendous capacity as a a civic leader, but also in philanthropy. And I could just go on and on. I mean, really, that's just a, you know, Martine Gomez, style-wise. I mean, Veranda Pitchford, who is one of my peers, but I think is a connector in a, a very, very profound way. Patty Wong, um, somebody I've always admired. I could just go on and on and on. There, that's the good thing about, about this field. I think there's so many <laughs> great people who are doing great work that it's sometimes hard to figure out everybody who's great. This is the 200th episode of this podcast. So I've had like at least 200 people <laughs> that I think is inspirational and doing great work. And I couldn't name all 200 right, <laughs> right now. Yes. But, um, Thank you. 200, right? Yes, Thank yes. you. Your episode 200 and then episode 100 was Keith Michael Fields, so the previous executive yes. director. So. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for even having me. And thank you for giving this opportunity to kind of talk about and reflect on. It hasn't been fully a year and a half in this position, but I feel so tremendously blessed to be at ALA at this time for all of the reasons that we talked about. And I just want to thank you for all that you were doing for the field, because documentation is so key to practice and it's something that we don't often do. I think you're giving us an easy way to kind of reflect and talk about what is actually happening. And, and I think the archival capacity of this work will actually probably have a life of its own. So I just want to commend you.
Thank you. And I also feel like that as a white man, I haven't experienced a lot of that stuff that you were talking about before, but I can use this platform to raise other people's voices and get it out there so that other people can hear. So I'm trying, you know, I'm doing what I can to get other voices out there. So you but Steve, let's talk about that for just a quick, quick minute. Sure. One of the things that I think is so important about this particular time is that it gives us all a 360. Right. My may be focusing on some of these things. You know, I just wrote about the school to prison pipeline in a column called A Hurting Thing about my own feeling of helplessness when I saw a young man that I saw had so much capacity and I felt that I, I didn't know how to reach him. Right. I think about that and I roll it over in my mind again and again. And I, I wrote about it and I'm happy to see that it's resonating with folks. And I positioned school librarianship as one of the possible opportunities for disruption. And I'm hearing from a lot of school librarians about it. But the thing is, is that I, in growing up, have had an opportunity to kind of understand how a, a white person who is now living with her grandfather, you know, in the mountains, and he's gruff, and she is needing love and familiar support, how she navigates that, right? And that book becomes so dear to me, you know, Heidi, right? Or I get a chance to participate in a lot of existential crises that, you know, in the Bildens Roman novels that I was reading growing up of teenagers where they might be white young men or groups of young people. And I get a chance to understand, you know, what that feels and have that resonate for me. Or if you ask me what are the best books I've ever read or best movies that I've ever seen or best music I've ever listened to, I'm going to give you a constellation that looks like everyone and everything, whether it is, you know, and I still think about Kurt Cobain because I I spent a lot of time in Seattle when Nirvana and Hole and Moxie and all those groups were having their heyday. So I would not only listen to them, I might run into them on the street or in a, literally in an apartment building. So that music resonates. And that makes me fully human. Without that, I would be not, less. So I want to just say to our white colleagues, when they're listening to all of this, everybody feels pain. Everybody feels lost. Everybody feels vulnerability. Everybody has felt what it means to not be listened to, not be seen persecution, everybody, you know, people can experience poverty, that can be an equal opportunity employer, those kinds of things, maybe not at the same degrees, those kinds of things. But what I want to say is welcome to the human experience. Welcome, get into it, right? Because it's going to make it richer. There are some ways that Nirvana expressed imposter syndrome that when I want to kind of get into that and kind of like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. I can go right back to Nirvana. If they weren't a part of my, of my sort of music world, I wouldn't have as an acute response to that feeling as what Kurt Cobain is constantly introducing us to, right? Over and over, this feels good, but do I have a right to feel good like this? Am I worthy of this particular feeling? Is it really me or is this false? Or, you know, those kinds of things. But I, I just want to say that to folks, because when I hear that, I want to just say welcome. Welcome to the human experience. Let it be as full and right for everyone. Enjoy it and begin to understand that we can learn so much and we become fully human by encountering as many different types of human experiences as we can. And in fact, maybe that's how we should be ending today. Let the librarianship work that we do be about the relentless quest to understand the ways in which all humans generate information, um, how we collect, 
how we um, archive, how we disseminate, and how we codify that. That should be what we're up to. And I hope in the next 150 years of the association, we will have a primary place in, in that practice. Well, and I appreciate that you're gonna be part of that as the executive director of the association. So thank you for that and continuing to do that. And thank you again for coming on the show today to talk about all this. Thank you, Steve. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Synthetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing for sponsoring today's episode. Visit them on the web at synthetics.com.